morning, y'all. Good to see y'all. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Andy. Uh, I'm on staff here at the Bridge, um, and I have the pleasure of being able to uh, close out the series that we've been doing throughout this fall on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Um, so, some of you know that I'm into sneakers. I've mentioned that probably too many times, honestly, uh, when I've been up here. But by by extension of that, I only bring that up because by extension of that, I also kind of keep a, a general pulse on like the world of fashion in general. Um, and so you're, you're probably familiar with like, the, like a look that's kind of similar to this. I, I wore this intentionally as like a visualization, but like you're familiar with like what I would call like the hobo chic look that's been like famous over the last few years where it's like, I mean, there's, there's like some like distressing here, but like there's literally jeans where it's like the entire leg is cut off from the front or something like that. So you've seen stuff like that, like really baggy shirts, um, like bleach splatters and you know, earth tones, that sort of thing. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is because the single person most responsible for that is this guy named Jerry Lorenzo. And Jerry Lorenzo, he made that look famous through his uh, high, high street fashion label called fear of God. Um, and the phrase fear of God is honestly probably really off-putting to a lot of people. It's not exactly the most like warm or inviting uh, concept. Um, and I think that speaks to, there's, a, there's this common criticism against Christianity that God, especially in the Old Testament, he's, a, he's like a tyrant. He's someone who is really petty and partial and um, vengeful, violent. Uh, and so many people are really repulsed by that concept of God and um, wouldn't consider becoming a Christian because they think that that's who God is. And honestly, if that was who God was, if that's all he was, I'd be right alongside them, like if that's all he was. Um, but in an interview, Jerry explained why he chose the name Fear of God for his, his, his label. Um, so he talked about his childhood um, where his family would, uh, together, they would read from this book of daily devotionals, which uh, m many of you might be familiar with. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. Um, and he was saying that, you know, one of the concepts that they would read about was called the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. And so this is a quote from this interview. He says, reading about the fear of God and the clouds and the darkness around his kingdom, if you didn't know him, but having the same fear out of respect and reverence for him, if you did know him, that juxtaposition was so awesome to me. So Jerry was basically saying that even though God possesses an intimidating sort of power, um, because we can know him and be known by him, um, God's power is actually a reason to, to be completely awestruck and, and reverent for him, to have this affection and, and yeah, reverence for, for God. And so my hope today is that you know, after our entire fall series through the Old Testament prophets, and after going through today, through the final Old Testament prophet of Malachi, uh, that we would see that because God has this everlasting love, um, that he, he rebukes and he warns his people of judgment so that their reverence and their obedience and their affection for him, the, f the fear of God in them, um, would be renewed. Uh, and, and not only that, but that in that renewed fear of God, uh, that they would experience the blessing of his promises that we're going to see and hear about and, and be a blessing to others around them. So I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into it. Um, God, I uh, thank you that you are unchanging 
Thank you that you are unfailing, God, that your love never ends, that you are a, 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 just a father who desires to, to know his children, that you desire to see us flourish under your, your headship, God. And I, I just thank you that um, you've just given us the opportunity today to, to dig into your word, God, um, a part of your word that we might be really unfamiliar with, but um, we can see so much of your good character in it. And so I just pray that... Um, that you would speak through me or in spite of me, whatever it, that takes, uh, to, to tell everyone here that you are worthy of our reverence, of our obedience, our affection. Um, so yeah, I just thank you for this morning. I pray that you would uh, be amongst us and that we would honor you with everything we do here. Uh, pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. All right, so before we get into the, the kind of the, the first big chunk, I want to give some kind of summary of what we've covered this fall, um, which provides a lot of context for what happens in Malachi. Um, so we've already surveyed, I think it's eight of the 12 uh, Old Testament prophets, and they, the, they were speaking on God's behalf to God's people during a very tumultuous time in their history. Um, after centuries of infidelity to God, uh, they actually ended up having to spend 70 years in captivity to the nation of Babylon. Um, and so despite God telling, and oh, sorry, so uh, actually before God sent them into this captivity, before they endured this captivity, in the book of Jeremiah, um, you actually get to see God talking to them and, and kind of telling them, hey, I'm not abandoning you. This is happening because of what you've done, but I'm not abandoning you, and um, I have a plan for you. That's, you know, if you're familiar with that Jeremiah 29, 11 verse, that's where that comes from. God is telling them, I have a plan for y- y'all. So um, all that to say that that, that was what, that's what God told them before they entered the 70 years of captivity. But despite that, after they kind of left this, after they were freed, uh, most of them did not feel that that was true. Most of them felt as though God had abandoned them and that he actually loved their enemies and their oppressors more than he loved them. Um, so the first Part of Malachi that I'll read is from uh, chapter two, verse seventeen. We're going to be jumping around a lot. It's 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 relatively a short book, but we're going to jump around a lot. So they'll be up here. You can look in your Bibles. Um, there's Bibles under your chairs if you don't have one. Please feel free to take one if you don't own one. Um, but yeah, so we'll be jumping around a lot. So don't feel bad about just looking at the screen as we uh, jump around today. So um, this this first passage, chapter two, verse seventeen. Malachi says this to the people. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so this, this uh, kind of uh, revelation about what they've been saying about God, it, it, it reveals where their hearts are at right now. They really don't, they feel abandoned, they feel they don't feel this trust for God. They feel as if he's um, prioritizing other people over him. And so, you know, they, they returned after 70 years to the capital city of Jerusalem, which was in ruins. And the, the, the temple, their homes, they were all in shambles. And the, the whole process of rebuilding was an ordeal, as we covered in Haggai and um, some of the other prophets. And God had to rebuke them then because they were really prioritizing their own stuff over God's dwelling place, the temple. Um, and so what, where we're in in Malachi is kind of after that process. Everything's been rebuilt. Um, and so you'd think, okay, everything should be fine now. Everyone's settled in. Things are back to normal. But really what we, where we find them is that the people, 
their hearts are still in ruins. Um, they, they did not want to follow their God because they didn't believe their God was good. They didn't believe their God was for them anymore. Uh, we're going to read um, <clears throat> from chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So clearly they have this bitterness in them. They're very cynical. And so it's in this place that God is confronting them. He has to confront them. And so what we're going to do, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what we're going to do is this, this first big chunk, we're going to look at these rebukes that God gives his people, his con- his, him confronting their, the position of their hearts and how it's affecting their lives. Um, so the first rebuke, the first and second rebuke are very much uh, kind of related. The first rebuke comes from some sections in chapter one, uh, starting in verse six. Um, and this is about cheap worship. Um, so, start, uh, chapter one, verses six through eight. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may, de- may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. W- will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And then we're going to jump down to verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So well, there's a lot of talk about these animals that, have, that were supposed to be offered to God. Um, animal sacrifice was the way of worship that God had instructed Israel um, to. And before we get into the details of the animals, I just want to clarify, um, even though God gives instruction about worship, he doesn't need our worship. That would make him a very <laughs> weak God. He doesn't depend on our worship. But, you know, for, for imperfect people, for, for frail people to interact with the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-good that, that is God, that worship is the only logical way that we can engage God because that, that's where he is. He's worthy and we are not. So, um, so now these animals. The animals that, that the Israelites had been uh, instructed to sacrifice on a regular basis, they had to be young, healthy, and pristine. Uh, and they, they, they lived in a time where they were an agrarian society. They depended upon their animals for food, for clothing, for labor. Um, so many important aspects of their livelihood came from their animals. And so for them to willingly kill a healthy and young animal 
was both extremely costly and extremely risky for them. Uh, but by offering up these animals to God, they were putting their money where their mouths were, essentially. Uh, they, they were showing themselves and each other that they believed that God deserved their very best, regardless of the cost or the risk. Um, and, and so, conversely, by offering blind, sick, or lame animals, the people were keeping the best for themselves, and they were giving God their, their sloppy seconds. Uh, and, you know, I think... While obviously we don't have to do all this animal worship anymore, that's not the requirement that God has put before us. Um, you know, we, we often still do the same thing. We still selfishly or fearfully give God the scraps. We don't give him the best. Um, you know, I, I have to, like, I, as I was preparing this, it's really uncomfortable, but, like, to, to like, what confession for me is, like, I barely give God the time of day so often. Too many days where I barely give God the time of day. Obviously, my day job is working at this church, so I'm doing godly things, but there's, I so often let myself act as if doing godly things is, suffic- is a sufficient substitute for spending time with him and forgiving him every facet of my existence. Not simply you know, not my nine to five, not simply my mornings, but every facet of my day uh, and my existence. That's too often where I'm, I'm holding out on him. Um, so the second rebuke is, is addressing the same fundamental issue. Um, and it's, it's robbing God. That's the words that is, is used, is robbing. And so I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So God is very directly, uh, you know, calling them out on this thing that they've been holding out on him. You know, uh, if we think about it, uh, a true God, if, if God is truly all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all these things that are just so far beyond us, if those are all true of him, there's nothing we can give that's adequate. But, you know, at all the same, to give something is better than nothing, right? And, um, you know, thankfully, he doesn't expect us to give everything. He doesn't expect us to live in incomplete poverty. Um, but in this context, this, this talk about tithe, you know, most of you might be familiar with it, but a tithe means a tenth. God had instructed them to give a tenth of their harvest every year uh, to him. And so what he's saying here is they have been withholding at least a part, if not all, of their tithe of the tenth that God had called them to, which means, again, they've been keeping more for themselves instead of giving more to God. And so this, this keeping of the tithe, this withholding of the tithe, this reflects a total lack of trust that God would provide. And, you know, what I was thinking about was that this is like essentially they're hedging their bets because obviously they need to eat, you know, they need to have stuff in store in case, you know, there's a famine, in case there's you know, un- unforeseen circumstances, but they're hedging their bets. And what hedging your bets is, that's not being faithful. That's being fearful. You know, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. It's, it's not trusting. It's, it's letting, letting your own worries and anxieties um, override your trust that God is good and he provides. So my question to us is, how often do we hold out on God because of either selfishness or fear or some combination of the two, uh, you know. And what, what if, if, if that's evident? What does that tell us about our faith in Him? What does that tell others about our faith in Him? 
what kind of witness does that have um, to the world? So, you know, like, I mean, some of the basic things, the most f- kind of fundamental things is, you know, first is, I mean, he's very much talking about their equivalent of money, essentially, at the time. And so, you know, maybe you're stingy with money. If so, God might be calling you to practice extravagant, sacrificial generosity. Um, maybe you tend to excuse yourself, like I do, from spending time with God or doing ministry. Um, if so, God might be calling you to reevaluate your, do- your daily schedule, your calendar. Um, maybe you tend to invest more energy in your, your own passions and projects over God's mission. Uh, if so, you know, God might be calling you to reprioritize what you invest yourself in. Uh, but I, w- I want to read verse 10, which immediately follows what we read about uh, them robbing God. Um, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God promises to meet every need. Not, not some needs, every need. And so that's, that is where we can have a confident hope and, and entrust him with everything. Even the things that seem stupid to the world, stupid to our own intuition, to entrust him with. So the third and fourth rebuke, are, again, are kind of very much tied to one another. Um, and, it's, and it's about this faithlessness and a, and a compromising. So I'm going to start with um, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So what we're hearing here is that specifically the men of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the first tribe of Israel, they were being faithless. They were abandoning and divorcing their wives. Um, And their faithlessness to their wives was completely devaluing and belittling the beautiful covenantal bond that God designed marriage to be. Um, And I want to read from uh, one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, in chapter 5, which, again, some of you might be familiar with, where he talks about marriage. So I just want to read two verses from there. Paul says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what we're seeing here is that marriage is an embodied covenant. It's something meant to illustrate to the world around us and to ourselves that the affectionate, intimate, unifying nature of God's love is is supreme. And we can actually experience it. But how would that be able to happen if they're literally breaking their marriage covenant? 
if they're not being faithful. So them, them doing this was, I mean, obviously, like very clearly, an offense to their wives. It's hurting them. But at a, at a, in a spiritual level, it's, it's being a terrible witness to the love of God. It's, it's, showing, it's, not, it's, showing them that, it's showing the world that God's people are not faithful, that they aren't committed. So obviously, you know, I, I don't think we have an issue where all the men are divorcing their wives here, <laughs> so, which I'm grateful for. Um, but I do think kind of a more a translatable kind of principle from this is that, you know, God has given us, he's made us relational, he's given us relationships to be faithful with. Um, and, you know, he, he asked, he's given us them so that our faithfulness in our relationships are a witness to his everlasting affection and devotion. So when it comes to our relationships first with God, but then, and then with our, our community as a church, our church community, um, but also with, again, our spouse, our families, our friends, our coworkers, even our neighbors, those, those relationships all matter. The way that we exhibit the faithfulness of God in those relationships is so important. And so then the fourth rebuke is kind of the, the, the secondary effect of what happens when they're faithless. The men of, uh, I'm going to read from uh, ch- chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so, as after the men of Judah were leaving their wives, they were being faithless to their wives, and they were taking wives from pagan nations, nations that did not worship the one true God. And so, you know, when you, like, to see God getting upset about this, some people might out of context be like, oh, God's like racist, he's like anti-mixing, that sort of thing. That's not what's happening here. Um, the heart behind this is, is, very, is much more, is much different, addressing something entirely different. And on top of that, it's a very, it was a very temporal specific thing. Um, God did not arbitrarily pick Israel as his people. He picked them, he did not, I should say, he did not arbitrarily pick them as like the one favorite God picked Israel to bless them, but also to be, for them to be a blessing, a conduit of blessing to the rest of the world. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with um, the story of Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the forefather of Israel, was that, that God would bless them so that they would be a blessing to the nations. And so that blessing that is being talked about is Jesus, that Jesus, who was a blessing of salvation for the world. Um, and you may or may not know this, but Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah, and that's who God's addressing here. And so God's plan from the very beginning was to bless the world through Judah, Israel, and more specifically through Judah by providing Jesus. So if Judah's going and sleeping around, then how are they going to produce an offspring of Judah? It's no longer Judah. It's, it's a bunch of, you know, it's a mess. So that, like, for them to do this was liter- very directly messing with God's plan for salvation to the world. So 
obviously we don't have that burden on our shoulders. We don't have the burden of needing to be this like nation that needs to, you know, stay together to eventually give rise to the savior. Um, but even still, the, the principle is we need to be very vigilant about how well um, our relationships and our activities uh, reflect God's will for our lives and for the world. How well do, does the way we live our lives reflect that God desires to redeem the world? How well are we being a part, are we cooperating in that? So to wrap up this section, I actually want to give y'all some homework. Um, uh, you know, tonight before you go to sleep, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Um, one, how are you prone to selfishly or fearfully holding out on God? How are you prone to selfishly or fearfully holding out on God? The second, how are you prone to be unfaithful to him and others? How are you prone to be unfaithful to him and others? And then finally, how are you prone to compromising on God's will and God's way? So, thankfully, Malachi is not purely rebuke. God did not solely rebuke his people for their many sins. In spite of their faithlessness, God made some life-giving promises to them, too, in this book. And so the first one that we're going to hit, I think, is the biggest one. It kind of gives a grounding to what, everything else in this book. Um, and it actually starts with this really crucial, um, invaluable reminder about who God is. So I'm going to read from chapter 3 verses six to the second half, or sorry, six through the first half of seven. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So if God was a God of weights and measures, the way unfortunately a lot of people think he is, if that was who God was, he would have been completely justified in totally destroying Israel at literally any point over the course of centuries. But of course he didn't. Even though every single generation, top to bottom, had repeatedly disobeyed God's commandments for their lives, they had repeatedly held out on him, and they had repeatedly abandoned him for lesser false gods. In spite of all that, because of God's character, Specific and in the, like what was what is talked about here is his unchanging nature. He does not change from the fact that he is love, and the love that he is 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 faithful. It is um, it is gracious. It's everlasting. It's merciful. Because he doesn't change from that sort of love, he holds to his word and he holds to his people. He will never abandon, condemn, or destroy his own. Even though Israel only deserved punishment, God gifted them that sort of security. And so if we go to um, verses 16 to 18 of chapter 3, we see the response of this, of hearing this specific promise and all the rebukes that have come before it. Um, We see the response of the people of God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So this, this language of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, that refers to those who heard God's rebukes and they heard this promise and they took it to heart. Those who fear God will be claimed by God as his treasured possession and be spared of any punishment. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's so encouraging, that's so life-giving to hear that we are, like, in spite of ourselves, that we are God's treasured possession. So, because God is unchanging in his love and in his promises, those who fear him and esteem his name, they can have, we can have complete confidence that we are going to experience this eternal security, this eternal glory with God. So the second promise that we see comes from uh, the beginning of chapter three, verses one to four. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. So what we see here is that God is promising his people that they're going to have, or they're going to receive a purifying refining Savior. Um, and they're, even in spite of their repeated failures, he promises them this, this salvation. And so if, you, if, you, if you're not catching on to it yet, this is, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And what, what, what God is telling his people is that as a result of Jesus, the refining, purifying messenger, that the people of God will finally be able to worship him purely the way he deserves So the third promise comes from uh, kind of both chapter three and four. So we're gonna read verse five of chapter three, which comes immediately after this promise of a savior. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So what God is promising here is that all evil is going to be abolished. Let's, let's read verses four, uh, chapter four, verses one through three. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping, cal- leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so this passage in particular, it's, it's a even doubling down and saying all evil is entirely just 
destroyed. It's not, it's not banished, it's gone. And, you know, the language that we hear here is probably one of the big reasons why people think of God as a tyrant. They think of him as this vengeful, uh, unloving God. But, you know, if, if we want God, if we think God is supposed to be perfectly loving and perfectly just, then the judgment that he's promising here shouldn't be a point of concern. Because for one to be perfectly just and perfectly loving, good, they can't turn a blind eye to evil. They cannot let it go unanswered. That's unjust. Mercy and grace, which is what people are really, you know, people want when they say, I want a loving God, that does not trump justice. All those things are equally important and they're equally um, essential to God's nature. And so the, the, the only thing that we can find our hope in is that this, this sort of judgment that's promised here comes after the purification that is promised through Jesus. So that sort of, that, that order of events should be our reassurance. It, that should be the only reason we're secure, not because of our performance, not because we understand everything, but because God has promised a savior before judgment. So the final promise, the fourth promise, is it's kind of scattered throughout um, chapter one. So I'm gonna read two, two verses from chapter one. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then from 14, the second half of 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So what we're seeing here is that God promises that all nations, not just his chosen people, Israel, but people of all nations will come and they will fear and worship him as he deserves. And step, taking a step out of that, to me, it's pretty crazy. Like thinking of, like in the world back then where there's people with like a zillion different religions, like cultic religions, that sort of thing. And, and in today's world where there's people of all sorts of beliefs and values and nationalities, et cetera, et cetera. Amongst all that diversity, it's so crazy to think that every people of every sort could agree on even one thing, like a single thing. Yet, God is so powerful and amazing that he promises that people of every nation will come to worship him as the one true God. So I think this sort of unity that God is promising here, um, that should give us a total confidence in, in the truth, the beauty, and the power of his love. So we've talked about the, the relevance of Malachi's rebukes in our own lives um, and how we ought to respond. And we've talked about the promises that God makes to his people and how powerful they are for our lives. But I think at the end of the day, all, all the rebukes, all the promises in this book, they all point to one simple commandment, one simple application for us, and that's fear God. Why? Because as Malachi says, he is a great king. He's a great king whose character, whose power, whose love and plan for the world make him worthy above anyone or anything else. And 
when we think about it, fearing God is not a one-time decision. Fearing God is a lifetime of decisions. Fearing God is a daily posture of our souls. It's not living in fear of God's judgment. That's not what fear of God is. Fear of God is, is living in this joyful reverence, affection, and obedience to him because we've experienced his unchanging, undeserved eternal love. In uh, chapter two, Malachi describes the faith of Levi, the father of one of the 12 tribes, the father of the priesthood. Um, so I wanna read from chapter two, verses four to six. So shall you know that I've sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God of promise, my covenant may stand. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So because of his fear of God, Levi had life and peace. He was able to walk well with God, uh, to give wisdom, and to turn others from their sin towards righteousness. And, I mean, the promise of life and peace, I truly believe that life and peace are the thing that every single human being craves in the deepest part of their hearts. But unfortunately, we tend to resort to more immediate, lesser, more accessible things when we feel that urge. We don't have a fear of God, and our, our absence of our fear leaves us longing for more. And so I would say, like, I think a clear message from Malachi is our only hope for life and peace is the fear of God that Levi lived out. That's what we should aspire towards. Now, I say that, but if you're like me, um, you probably get frustrated at yourself a lot for frequently waning in that fear. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have, I, there's worse news for that. <laughs> in, in this life, on this earth, we will never not fluctuate, which is, I don't know about you, but it's even more frustrating for me. Because, but that's because the world is not yet completely rid of Satan's effort to sabotage God's people. Even still, in this life, as we, as, we, as we fluctuate and wane in our fear, God always rebukes us as we stray, rebukes us out of love. And in those moments, we choose how we respond. We can pridefully reject the rebuke and, and just stubbornly remain on whatever ultimately crash course we're on or we can cling to the truth that his power is made perfect in our weakness. We can cling to the truth that, that God's rebuke comes from a place of love for us and that he knows what's better for us. So there's a chance that somebody in here, you might not identify as someone who fears the Lord and esteems his name, but Jesus, the, this promised uh, messenger, this purifying, refining messenger, he's offering you life and peace. Um, you know, starting, starting next week, we're gonna begin celebrating Advent, a time where we remember and rejoice that, that the purifying messenger promised here in Malachi finally came into our world. And so, you know, I hope that you join us, that all y'all join us uh, for the next four Sundays of December as we celebrate uh, that God has given us the gift of Jesus.
who is the provider of this eternal life and peace. And you know, if, if you wouldn't describe yourself as someone who does fear God right now, who esteems his name, please hear that this, there's an invitation that God is extending to you that he wants you to have this life and peace. And he, and he knows that you're not gonna find it anywhere else. And the longer you try and find it anywhere else, the more disappointed you're gonna be. But, but God, but God offers a hand. So if you, if you don't take anything else away from today, I'll, I'll, my, I'll summarize my main point and I hope that you leave with this. That because of his everlasting faithful love, God rebukes his people and promises judgment in order to revive their reverence, their obedience, their affection, to revive the fear of God in them so that they can experience his promises and be a blessing to all others. Don't forget your homework. I'm gonna pray. Um, Father God, uh, <laughs> even trying to think of words to, to describe your worth, God, is it's false, <laughs> tragically short. Um, God, I, I pray that, that you would daily reveal yourself to us, that we would experience your presence as we offer up every part of our life to you, God. Uh, God, I, I, I'm grateful that you, that you will always confront us when we wane in our fear of you. I thank you that we don't have to fear you as a tyrant. I thank you that we can fear you as, as, a, as a loving, powerful, just father. Um, God, I pray for anyone here who does not know you in that way today. God, I pray that, that they would be willing to, to put aside the faith of, of the world, God, and, and, and take on a fear of you, God. Um, God, I pray for us as for those who, who call ourselves yours. God, I pray that you would be with us every day, that you would, that you would be our, not only our rebuker, God, but you would be our loving father, and that we would, um, out, of, out of a joy and a gratitude and a, and a humility, uh, just a sense, of, a sense of smallness, God, recognize that you are worthy of our reverence, of our obedience, of our affection. Um, so yeah, I thank you for the chance to, um, to hear your love, to hear your faithfulness, to hear your, your truth through Malachi. Um, I pray that you would, you, would take the, you would just plant this and cement it in our hearts that uh, we would not forget to, to turn to you, God, that we would, at every, every corner, every, every fluctuation, that we would respond well, God, by the power of your spirit within us, by the power of your spirit within each other, um, that we would help each other do that. We know we can't do it alone, and so we thank you that you have made a way, that you've given us relationships for that. Uh, so I thank you for this morning. I uh, pray that you would just help us respond rightly um, right here and, and going into this week and beyond. So I pray these things in the name of your Son, uh, by the power of your Spirit within us. Amen.